Today on the Dolby Institute podcast, we are discussing the music of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, which is now streaming on Netflix in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. Joining us is the movie's composer, Daniel Pemberton. His score was recently shortlisted for the 2024 Academy Awards. And since it is award season, we are welcoming back our now regular guest host, music journalist John Burlingame, who will be interviewing the nominees in the original score category. So let's dive into this conversation about Daniel's score for the latest animated Spider-Man feature. I'll let John take it from here. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse was the third highest grossing film of 2023. And we're delighted to have with us the Oscar, Emmy, and BAFTA-nominated composer of that film. Welcome, Daniel Pemberton. Hi. Hi, John. So you had done the first uh, animated Spider-Man film, Into the Spider-Verse, back in 2018. Was it the same producers, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who asked you back for the sequel? Yeah. I mean, Phil and Chris are a very integral part of the Spider-Verse family stroke team, stroke army. Um, and I think after that first film, it was a very kind of big challenge for us all to like try and, you know, you set out in these films, you try and do something very different and you don't know whether at the end you're going to get to this big talk you always give at the beginning about how we're going to make a film that feels like nothing else. But at the end, I felt like we did. And... I think everyone was excited to come back and do a second one. So did you start right away on the project? And I'm wondering how far along was the animation when you started uh, on Across the Spider-Verse? Well, the animation is always flexing. Like it's always changing, like with with these films. Um, but I, you know, as soon as I finished Into, into the Spider-Verse, I was thinking about Across because I think with Into Spider-Verse, it was one of the few films, like as a composer, you don't often get a chance to have a kind of playground where you really can be very experimental and really sort of push at the edges of what film music can be. And, you know, obviously it's, it, you want to try and do that, but not every movie will support that kind of approach. And with Spider-Verse, it really did. So I was very aware of if there was a sequel of tr tr trying to build on what we created on the first one. And that's what everyone else was doing. It's like, rather than say, well, we did this thing that was successful. Let's just do more of the same. It's more like, okay, if you let's do that, let's see how much further we can push it. Um, but yeah, all that process, you know, the first things I saw were like these amazing um, displays of all the concept art, the universes, the characters, uh, how the directors were, basically putting together these different worlds, how the art styles and the animation techniques, I got a whole breakdown of like how basically the animation would work in different, different universes. You know, my, the one I always remember being most blown about, blown away with was 2099's world, which was heavily influenced by Sid Mead concept art. And it was things to do with like, you know, in that concept art, there's like sketch pencil lines that then colored in with markers. And often those sketched pencil lines will have like edges like that um and all that stuff's in there and they're showing me the engine of like how those lines would sort of disappear as things got close to a further way like really like they're building engines to the ground up and that's kind of what i was trying to do with the music as well rather than just like 
go into like, okay, here's a film score, boom. It's like each world had its own kind of musical engine to build from. Um, so it's very influenced by that. And then as you work, you get some animation that is amazing and you get a lot of animation that is like two stick figures with arrows saying this is Miles. <laughs> Did you have a grand plan in mind? I asked that question because this score encompasses all kinds of different music, all kinds of different sounds, and and I mean, it seems as ambitious musically as it was story-wise. Yeah, I think at the end, I would. I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of the score, and I feel like it sounds like what I wanted it to sound like um, uh, at the end, which is good because sometimes you get to the end of a film and you're like, you set out with a vision of what it is, but I don't know what the sound was going to be by the very end of this film. Um, I really wanted it to like take a lot of risks and try a lot of stuff that felt unusual in film music, like modern film music for these kind of movies. Um, because when I say these kind of movies, I kind of mean big blockbustery films where the emotion and the storytelling move very fast. You know, if you're doing a slightly more, uh, let's say kind of indie film that has a slower pace and it's all about creating texture and tone, those scores are great. I love doing those kind of things, but the mechanics of making more unusual music is a lot easier. Whereas when you have a kind of blockbuster film where stuff moves at this kind of speed and you've got to hit these kind of emotions and these ones and these ones in about three, three scenes, which might be 10 seconds apart or something. That's why orchestral scores are always so uh, prevalent over film music over the last 50, 60 years or whatever is because an orchestra is nimble enough to move between those sounds very quickly. And if you do something that's very modern, it's hard to nimbly move between emotions, I find. So you always end up relying on the orchestra. And with this, what I was trying to do is like, how do we build our own orchestra that has the same range of uh, skill sets, sounds? You know, if you've got an orchestra, you know, like a tuba is going to be great for really low, heavy stuff, but it's not going to be good for fast-paced solo. Whereas a piccolo you could do something very fast on it would sound great. And each instrument has its limitations, but you have all these different instruments so they, they kind of counteract each other and you, you go with their strengths. And so with this, it was like, how do we build all these sounds that have their own unique qualities? And how do I work with those within the framework of the score to make a sort of new orchestra? I mean, it sounds a bit sort of nonsense, but it is, you know, you're looking at like, you know, if, if you've got the, orchestra here you've got like the double basses cellos um violas and then violins up here and it's like how do you get that that range and that might be like we've got some very heavy synth bass down here we've got like some guitar things some twinkly synths and something up here and it's, it's trying to find these things that will do the job of an orchestra but differently
So let's talk specifics then. Uh, and maybe the way to do it is to talk about characters. Did you, I mean, because there's so many spider people in this movie. I mean, there's not just Miles Morales and Gwen Stacy, but, you know, there's Jessica Drew and Miguel O'Hara and and Hobie, the punk guy. And there's, there's, did everybody need their own musical signature? The film moves really fast. And so I'd have to create themes for them that would establish themselves within seconds. And so you couldn't really have, you can't really have super long themes that you might have in a, in a different type of film. It has to be like very immediate. And, and so that can be anything from just a sound, you know, like, you know, like 2099 sound, you know, it's a musical phrase, bow, wow, wow, wow. But it's like, it's the sound that captures you. And in the first film we had the Prowler, which really was almost just like a sound design. Um, and we hear that maybe in this film, if you haven't seen it, I'm giving a bit away there. Um, Jessica Drew has this kind of crazy screaming thing, which is actually me pitched up through a ring modulator. Gwen's got her like her kind of riff, which is, you know, trying to capture like the lightness of her, the more balletic kind of quality. Punk's got his, you know, classic punk sort of sound. And I wanted each character to have their own riff and motif, but each of their universes had to feel like it belonged to them as well. Then everything has to be able to like combine and work with each other. So you have to kind of work within a similar harmonic language so everything can kind of jump on top of each other when it needs to. But, but it's so interesting to me because this isn't just electronics and not just orchestra, but there's elements of hip hop here. And there's particularly interesting to me, DJ scratching. Um, and there's so many different sounds that you're bringing to bear here. And I kept thinking, did he come up with this a little at a time or was this a grand plan that you knew would ultimately work? I mean, it was definitely a grand plan to probably make this the most maximalist film score I've ever done. It's like, you know, it's, it's super maximalist. There is so much in this score and the way I re record as well means everything is like often layered to a very heavy, complex degree. And I have a great mixer called Sam McKell who, uh, has to sort out that comp that problem, <laughs> um, but I like the like like it, the film has so much in it. So you you kind of reacting to the film, you're reacting to visuals, you, you're reacting to the um, I'd say let's say liberties taken in in the filmmaking style of doing something very different of just jumping from things and the kind of cut up nature of it. So I'm really responding to everything you're seeing on screen. You know, the record scratching is a great one because it's it's like re-manipulating the audio in a way that's not normally done in film scores um, because it's really time-consuming and it takes forever. You know, you you write something for orchestra, you record it, then put it on a turntable and you get someone to scratch it back in. And then you go and edit that and you put it back into the piece. And it's a really long, time-consuming process, but it makes it feel unlike anything else. Um, and for me, techniques can be just as interesting as melodies because they are ways of, you know, making, making something feel different. You know, like when Bartok worked out, you bang the back of the strings with the bow. It, it's a technique that's different and it gives something an identity. And this is just a modern way of doing that really of, um, 
of trying to find new approaches to 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 to, to, to film score. So when the audience sees it, it's really engaging and exciting because when you see or hear things that you've never seen or heard before, the, everything becomes more powerful. And I kept thinking, you know, because Miles and Gwen are young people, I think to have a straightforward orchestral score might not have worked at all. I mean, this needed to have a kind of contemporary modern sound, right? Yeah, I mean, this film is very much steeped in youth culture and... You know, it's like even me as a composer, okay, I'm, I might be getting on a bit now, but like, you know, I've grown up through, you know, rave, hip hop, um, pop, classical music, jazz music, punk music, all this stuff, right? So I'm kind of a product of the world around me in, in the same way, you know, composers, you know, like Bernard Herrmann or John Williams, they, you know, they grew up through symphonic music or classical music and you know, I've grown up in a different world and I'm trying to, you know, use the world I've grown up in and reflect that through the music I make rather than just copy what people have done before. And for me, you know, moments as a youth going to like hip hop clubs in East London, you know, it's where I first really saw turntablism, record scratching and that blowing me away and just being like, oh my God, this is like a whole art form that I don't think anyone's used in a kind of more musical way in, in like film music. And I was always like, I want to do that one day in a film. I used to go to these like crazy raves when I was 15 in, in Brixton, which were like in these mad underground venues. And you'd hear like Derek May play or something. It was like really quite amazing people. And, you know, I got really into electronic music and that comes out in 2099's world. Um, and so I wanted, you know, I, I love the orchestra. I think the orchestra is one of the, like the greatest musical making instruments, so to speak, there is, but it is just that it's an instrument. And there's, I, I think you can pull on every different instrument for film music, which is what's so good about it. And I love having a thing where you have a huge 70 piece orchestra, but you might have like, a bit of me whistling in a graveyard, right? On an iPhone. And like, I will give that as much importance if the scene requires it as a 70 piece orchestra, I just look at everything because for, for the sound and the emotional impact of it. address the issue of the fact that Gwen Stacy's a drummer and we see from the very beginning she's she's really going at it and I'm wondering did that impact you in the sense that Gwen needed to have a different kind of aggressive sound yeah I mean Gwen's sound was quite a, a complex one in some ways because her world is very dreamlike and it's got this beautiful like watercolor feel but it's very dreamy and you know, her, if you look at the style of her era, it's quite 90s. So I kind of, part of me want to be very influenced by sort of 90s in sort of slightly poppy synthy indie, um, which would be kind of like My Bloody Valentine or uh, Mazzy Star, things that had 
a dreamlike quality to them. But then there's an aggressive side through her drumming and her band, and I wanted to get that across as well. So you're sort of like shoving together like bits of each genre that you want that fit for her. You know, she's got her band, her opening stuff. I try to make, you know, I wanted the bass to have a kind of Nirvana feel, like come as you, the sort of bass line for come as you are, which I really like that kind of chorusy bass sound. Um, but then the drums, you know, she's like that. The opening is, you know, that was a great idea. I think it was from Phil actually, where he's like, let's build the whole opening around the drum drum kit. And, and that's another example of this film of working incredibly closely with the filmmakers, the edit, animation team of like, okay, I'll do this, send it back, I'll re-edit it, you re-edit it. And, and we keep working together. So everything feels, you know, this movie, everything feels like we're all working together rather than like, I've just turned up at the end and thrown some music on. So then there was actually genuine collaboration between departments all through this process? Yeah. I mean, to the extent where I had to move to LA and write quite a lot of it in a very unglamorous office in Sony, so I could be two doors away from the edit suite. So so we could kind of run into each other's rooms and be like, check this out, or we've done this, come and look at this. And while it, it wasn't fulfilling my Hollywood dream of what I thought writing a big Hollywood film would be, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't think it'd be me stuck in an office like 24 hours a day seemingly, but it was a, you know, it's, it was the right way to get us all working together it, it, in a very complicated film because it is a, you know, it's a massively complicated film and score. And only now we've finished it. You look at it and you're like, oh, I mean, it still feels complicated, but you've got to remember there've been very many different iterations of cues, approaches, you know, many scenes I've done many different ways. And uh, yeah, it was a big, big mountain of a, of a project. So did you write a lot here then maybe demo it up so that you could put they could put it into the cut and then go back to London to actually record it with your with your friends. Yeah, we recorded the score in London. I I wrote in London and in LA, so I would move between. I would do big sways in London and come over to LA, do a big sways here and go back and forth. So I was a bit nomadic and homeless during it, <laughs> um, but it's one of those films where you can feel that everyone else is giving it everything they've got. And you don't want to let the side down and be the person who's, you know, not not pushing it as far as everyone else. And it's great when you do a movie where you can do all that work and it and it feels justified. So we've talked about character themes, but I'm wondering, are, are there other musical uh, elements to the score that are uh, maybe larger in in scope? I mean, ideas for relationships or for the different worlds that we visit. Did, did every world have its own sound? Yeah, I mean, every universe has a sound, but there is big, like, thematic, melodic ideas and sound ideas all through this series, which in some ways I would say are a bit more old school in the best possible way. And it's kind of shocking that people find this weird, but, like, just having, you know, there's a Spider-Man motif, there's, like, a Miles Destiny motif, there's kind of chords which represent canon events, there's sounds which represent the multiverse. There's sounds which represent spiders. There's all these, there's tons of different things in this film that all connect.
And because everything in this is kind of custom, where I've built all the noises, we've made all the noises, so they're unique. You know, huge amounts of time in this film is research and development where we just try out ideas, bin loads of them, but every now and again come up with things which feel very special. And I'm like, we'll use that, we'll use that, and then seed that through. So there's things, there's loads of things that connect from the first film. And I think because I'm writing everything and it's none of it's being like passed over to, you know, teams of interns or assistants, that there's a connectivity that is somewhat lacking on these big films because the big films are often super, un, you know, they're very complicated beasts. And I think it can be diff difficult to connect with things. Also, you have series where there's different composers for the first and second films or or, you know, the characters all from different movies. And, and I think with this, because I've done everything, you can make something that really w works together. And it's really important for me that themes pay off or develop in different ways. So there is like that connection with the audience. Can You can sort of hear the storytelling through the music um, and through the sort of melodies. You know, you mentioned whistling a little bit earlier. I know there's whistling at some point in the score. There's also an operatic voice I seem to remember yeah. at one point. And then there is the unique idea of goose honk scratching. Goose honk, yeah. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about the more unusual sounds in the score? Well, for me, like going back to this idea of it being maximalist is like I, the support from everyone to just be like the more out there the idea, like the more we're going to be into it. Um, so like, you know, if we look at the opera singer, that was Vulture. And there used to be a line in the film that the Gwen's dad said something like, oh, I can't speak Italian. And the other cop says, have you never been to the opera? And I was just like, oh yeah, opera, opera's Italian, fine. I mean, it's not it's like, I love to pretend it's something really sophisticated, but like, let's give him an operatic voice. So I, I, I love that because there's a way to cut through, make his character feel different to everyone else. You know, I tried a whole bunch of stuff with time-stretched medieval instruments, and it was cool, but it didn't cut through in the same way that an operatic voice did. Goose Honk is probably the most famous bit in the film in terms of stupid ideas. But, you know, the, when we first meet Miles, we are scratching all these elements. I want it to be a scratch showcase. So we're taking all the sound effects that you see on screen, punching, car crashes, spray cans, felt tip pens. I got all those noises and I got DJ Blakey to scratch them in rhythmically to make this very unusual texture. Then at the end of, end of it, there's like a scene where they're battling with a goose. I was like, why have we not got a goose? So we got the goose honk, we got goose honk, and we record scratched the goose honk, which sounds great. And and the fact that this is a Hollywood movie that lets me goose scratch a, a record scratch a goose is like for me 
everything about how exciting this film is. And then there's whistling. There's like a whole bunch of me whistling. There's me slapping my face going. And when we did it live, I was like, okay, we did like, we did it live a couple of months ago at the Academy. And it's like, at the end, I get to like live out rock star fantasies, big rock guitar, look kind of cool, like relatively cool, as cool as I can look, which is not that cool. But I also had to have myself slapping my face for like two minutes, like going, which does not look cool. It makes you look like a fucking idiot <laughs> on stage. So for me, that sums up this score where it's like, I, it's both stupid and it's like cool. And it's got all these different elements of like fun, but like proper emotion, adventure, crazy sound design, conventional melodic writing, well, hopefully not too conventional. So what's wonderful about this is that I think that I kind of wonder if animation is um, soaks up music better than, or perhaps it's more important to have music supporting animation than in a live action film, because somehow the music helps you to um, accept that these are real people and real emotions, that kind of thing. Can you talk to that? Yeah, I wonder, it's like, it's sort of interesting with this because, you know, I have thought about that. You know, I've done tons of live action films and I've never done one as rich as this. You know, like I feel this score wouldn't wouldn't be the way I'd approach even like a live action version of this movie in the same way because I'm responding so much to the visuals and the ideas and it's such a rich world that I think is hard for live action to compete with. Um, but I think the other thing about this movie that's very interesting is the story, everything, at the end of the day, the story is the king and the emotions of the characters are kings. And, and I think a lot of superhero films have, have lost that and they've focused more on the spectacle. And while Spider-Verse really is an amazing spectacle, it, it only really works because the story is there and you care about the characters. Um, and it is, I think it is because the universe in this is so sort of spectacular, the music has to match that visual ambition. You know, you have to match that visual ambition with the sound. I think if it was a slow movie um, with, you know, a lot more domesticated, let's say, I think the score would be completely different. It wouldn't need music or like as much music as it does, but you just go with the film, every film, like, I remember chatting to Lalo Schifrin years ago and he gave me a great bit of advice. He's just like, you just got to go with the movie um, because every movie is different. And 
you know, I, I, you know, I did Ferrari this year with Michael Mann and I approached that completely differently to how I did Spider-Verse. Um, and you just want to do, you know, you want to go with what, what the film, what's going to make the film the best it can be. But also one of the things that fascinates me is that Lord and Miller, your producers, seem to encourage um, going big and going, uh, you know, and pushing the envelope. Yeah. I mean, like if Phil had his way, the entire score would be me like, well, Phil would tell me that he wants the whole score of me just blowing a bottle going like, <laughs> you know, but the reality is I'd tell him that's not going to work. It might sound cool. And like, we are pushing the envelope, but it's not going to deliver all these emotions and exciting things you want to do. But the idea that they want me to do that kind of stuff and the more out there we can be is very exciting. Like, but you still got to deliver other things. You know, the first Spider-Verse, I didn't want to have any orchestral elements. I wanted it to be all electronic because I, I wanted to try and veer away from the, anything that I felt was like traditional superhero movie music. But doing it, I realized it's not going to work. It, I needed the emotion. I needed some throwbacks to recognize that. And I wasn't getting it through the approach I was doing. And so I think you've got to be strong enough to throw out, you know, you can come with a big concept, but it's you've got to be strong enough as well to throw it out if it doesn't do what the film needs. But the, I think Lord and Miller are brilliant at encouraging and um, accepting crazy stuff. Speaking of orchestra, are we hearing the orchestra purely at any point in this? I keep thinking, I'm wondering, did you distort it? Did you process it? Um, and, and as a part of the overall uh, soundscape, yeah, we did a lot of processing of the orchestra um, because I didn't want, I, I found as soon as we had the orchestra too clean, it ended up feeling too much like a traditional sort of Marvel movie soundtrack. And I and I, I needed to mesh it with the electronics. You know, one of the things we really found with this is if you got the orchestra to all play straight on anything with Mick, it, it didn't blend as well. So we'd get the string players often to do a mix of Soul Pond, like close to the bridge and half of them not. And that would automatically give a slightly more abrasive, gritty sound. But then we'd also do things, you know, like the whole opening, we, rec we recorded it and then we put it through these um, guitar pedals. Weirdly, Leo Abrahams is a great guitarist, always has great pedals. He was using a pedal on punk, on the punk stuff. I was like, I love this pedal made by a company called Death by Audio. And... Uh, they don't give me any free stuff. I'm just telling you that it's a good pedal. <laughs> and it's, uh, it, it was like, it's kind of fuzz wah, but it had this amazing filter and like filter kind of opening envelope sound on it. Like, this is amazing. So we, we got that. And when we just, the opening, we just, those strings are all going through this wah wah pedal. And we recorded it like multiple times so we could get the atmosphere. So we do each pass. Sh -sh -sh. So, you know, let's say, let's say you've recorded the string section, right? And you've recorded, I don't know, that might be on 12 mics. You might Now, you're going to have to record those 12 parts individually, opening up manually this guitar pedal at the beginning, so and then put those all together, which is a lot of work. And But it gives a feel to a lot of the orchestral stuff that is different. Okay, let's do this one last time. My name is Miles Morales. I was bitten by a radioactive spider. And for the last year and four months, I've been Brooklyn's one and only Spider-Man. And things are going great. Hey, 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 hey. You can hurt somebody. Catching all sorts of bad guys. 
like a regular super villain so I can catch you. It's nice taking something and not being precious about the sound. Like there's like this thing I think about, like the way, like this is going to sound very pretentious, but the way Picasso painted, you know, there's a, there's a great sketch I just read there of Picasso with a bull and it's all these drawings of a bull and it's him taking, a, he does a really beautiful drawing of a bull that is like what you'd say a great, anyone would say that is a great drawing of a bull. It looks like a bull. It's beautiful. And then he deconstructs it and deconstructs it and deconstructs it until it becomes like three lines. And what's fascinating is like the way, like an artist like that approach painting and tries to deconstruct things and and not do what is conventionally assumed to be the right way to do things. And so I like doing that of, you know, taking a seven piece orchestra and slightly treating it with the respect, not with the respect you'd normally give it. But then there's other places where I'll totally let it fly free. There are some bits where there's not processing on, but it is quite a heavily processed score. So we've talked about so many different aspects of music making that went into this score. How long did all this take? Forever. It took so long. <laughs> like, 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 to be honest, this movie like started the day Spider-Verse 1 ended because I was very aware that I had a big journey, like a big journey in front of me and a big opportunity to do something that pushed it more. And I think the thing about the second film, whereas the first film is just really just Miles's journey, you know, Miles lives in what is basically planet Earth and there's a lot of places where songs would fill in for what would normally be score. But once you get into a lot of these different universes, you can't just throw songs over them because it does, don't really make sense. So you've got to make all the the sound worlds for those. So pretty much from the beginning, I was constantly thinking about new sounds, how are we going to get ideas across you know, any film I was working on, I'd be like, if I came across a technique, I'd like bank it for later. And then like sort of two years, I'd say was pretty solid Spider-Verse. And then the last nine months was very intense Spider-Verse. And the last three months was like, my entire life doesn't exist. It's literally Spider-Verse, Spider-Verse, Spider-Verse. <laughs> and it still feels like that now, to be honest. <laughs> so you're talking really about a three-year process to create this score. Yeah, it's a really really complicated score because you're building everything from the ground up every sort of technique every universe you're trying to create different ways of scoring a, a movie and that's that's very time consuming because you need to fail a lot you need to come up with ideas that don't work we did this whole like i had this whole idea like i built with i have a great assistant called alex and we will work together trying to build ideas of like sound ideas. And one of them was like this kind of time stretch engine where we could in, in real time, time stretch recordings, but multiple stems. So we'd, the idea was we'd record something, mix it, split it up into four or five different stems, go through it, put markers through every beat to forever. And then I could manipulate it all in real time. Um, and make things speed up and slow down and all like come back together and like this. But it was cool, but it just sounded too mental. And it was, and it was like one of these things you're like, oh my God, that was so much work. And it sounds like a mess. I mean, it sounds like a really cool mess, but it's not going to work in this kind of movie. And 
that was a lot of work. But that engine we built, you still hear it in the film over a lot of the electronics. It's a way of like making some electronics like feel very different. Some of the whistling, there's like, it's over a whole bunch of stuff. So it, 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 it was a long, long process because of that. So even some of the experiments that maybe, you know, failed ultimately and didn't wind up in the movie wound up pointing you in certain directions that you could go. Yeah. It's like when NASA went to the moon, we got like nonstick frying pans and ballpoint pens you could write upside down with, right? That's the same and thing. So <laughs> it's a bit like that. It's like, okay, we're going to try and go to the moon, but if we just get a nonstick frying pan out of it, at least that's something. And hey, look, more people have used nonstick frying pans than they have uh, gone to the moon. And as much as I love the moon mission, maybe that was the whole purpose of it for us to get nonstick frying pans. <laughs> Okay, so obviously, and I think I'm sure that anybody who sits uh, through this uh, half hour of anyone sits, anyone sits through this far, I'm like, <laughs> okay, right now we talk about the real. But now we get the real sequence, they, right? This is my count numbers. My point is, they've seen the movie, and so yeah. I wonder if you can talk for a second. I mean, the last 10, 15 minutes of this picture are extraordinary in terms of what happens, and I kept thinking, you know. How did he approach this? Does, is the finale of the movie really sort of the blossoming of everything you've done? Uh, yes and no. Like, yes, it is. Like, I love the finale of the movie. It's probably my favorite cues I've ever done. Uh, but it came really late. It was like the, the, the ending was a, a part of the film where we all kept fiddling with what it's going to be. You know, it used to end slightly differently um, and it didn't feel as satisfying, even though people don't necessarily find the ending satisfying. It ended a bit earlier and we didn't have the kind of here comes the cavalry element of, of Gwen and her team showing up. And what's really interesting about that piece was that was the first piece I ever wrote for the film. It was, it was the very first piece I recorded down when I was in my very, very early demo phases. So I did a whole bunch of stuff uh, very early on of like just throwing ideas out. Um, we had always like weird synthesizers that I was trying to get the spot to sound like that went cling, but none of them really worked on picture in the way I wanted them to. But those chords that then turn into this kind of like rock track, that was like, that was my way of introducing punk. That was like how I originally wanted to introduce punk. And, and I had a very scrappy demo and we're fiddling around with the end. And then we were like, what if we just, someone just said something and we put it on it and we were like, oh my God, this is great. This is great. And it was really exciting. I remember I was in the music editor to Katie Greathouse's room. We put it on. We're all sitting around and we're like, holy shit, this is, I was like, okay, right. Give me a couple of hours. So I run back to my room and I'm like, okay, let me rearrange this. Let me do this. Let me do this. Boom, boom, boom. We'll make this bigger. We'll take this down. And that piece, you know, like the, main bones of it came together really quickly as a result. And then we're like, let's put that on the beginning of the film. Now, in retrospect, I'd like to pretend I was really clever and I had this whole vision for the film that obviously I always knew this was going to be here and this was going to be there. But it was a real, like, that's what we need.
never found the right band to join. So I started my own. With a few old friends. And I think another thing with this movie and being a film composer is knowing when to say that's it and when to like, no, it's not good enough. You know, all the way through the themes, all these characters had different themes. You know, you come up with things, no, not right, not right, not right. And then you come up with one and you're like, that's it. And I think a big part of a film composer is being able to choose what is the right, the right approach for a sound, a character. And it's one of the reasons... I'm slightly dubious about AI in that I think AI has some very interesting creative possibilities. I think there's some very terrible things that are going to come out of AI to do with a billion things that we all know about or have talked about. But and I do think it's scary for, for composers and working composers. But I think at the end of the day, deep down, it takes a, a, a person, a human, to have a viewpoint to make those decisions because composing in some ways, you know, everyone likes to think it's this magical thing where it's like, I get some inspiration and it physically comes out of me, but the physicality is really a result of millions of processes going on in my head of being like, I know this will do this, this will do this. So this feels like the right way to do this. And, you know, there's 88 keys in the keyboard. I'm just mashing the ones I think that will go together. And, but it's making those decisions of like, if you want to make something new and different, you need to be in control of decision-making. And it's very easy to make generic-sounding film music. And AI will knock you up a film in two seconds that sounds generic. But people are going to get bored of that. People really are bored of that. And that's why I think this film has resonated with people, because it feels different. So you've just done the biggest job of your career. Will you have to top yourself with the next one? Top myself creatively, you mean? <laughs> Top yourself in English means to kill yourself. So, uh, oh, sorry. Uh, no, probably. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I can't even think about Spidey 3. It's too scared. Like, even just thinking about this film of like, like we got to the end, I'm very happy with how it sounds. Like, I'm very aware of trying to, com like trilogies need a good completion. And, you know, there's great trilogies and there's like Alien and Godfather where they don't really get, <laughs> they don't finish it off in the way you want them to finish right. it off. Well, I watched Godfather 3 on the plane. Everyone slagged it. I have not seen it ever before because everyone gave it such a bad rap. It's not so bad. When do you start on Spidey 3? They're already like bleeding things into my brain of ideas. And <laughs> I'm like, go away. I need to do something else and not think about Spider-Man over there. Well, all I can say is this is without a doubt the hippest score in the history of Marvel. And so congratulations to you for that. Thanks very much. That can be the quote. That can be the quote on the uh, poster. Right? It's been so much fun. Thanks for being with us, Daniel. Always a pleasure, John. 
Many thanks to Daniel for joining us on the podcast today. And thanks again to John for conducting another fantastic interview. And an extra special thanks to our friends at Sony for helping put this conversation together. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is now streaming on Netflix, where you can experience the movie in stunning Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. And as I mentioned up top, it is awards season. So make sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can expect many more episodes just like this one, especially as the nominations are announced, in case you need a little help filling out your Oscar ballot. If you happen to be an Academy voter, or if you just want to do a little better in your annual Oscars pool. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube, in our show notes. Or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you'll find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute Podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. And a great big welcome to our new production coordinator, Karen Marokin.